30 spokes meet in the hub, though the space between them is the essence of the wheel. Pots are formed from clay, though the space inside them is the essence of the pot. Walls with windows and doors form the house, though the space within them is the essence of the home. Lao Tzu. Hi, it's John. You're listening to the Access Potential Podcast. In negative space drawing, instead of looking at an object and observing the positive space, you start to draw the shape of the space around the object. So this could include any background detail or pattern. It could be the table that is behind the microphone that I'm seeing right now that's right in front of me, or it might be drawn as a simple silhouette. In a lot of drawing books, you'll find an example that begins with drawing an outline of the object and then shading all around it. This too is a silhouette, but it's not actually negative space drawing. As you draw the outline, you're actually doing a positive drawing, focusing on the positive spaces or the solid shape, so the microphone in this case, the solid shapes of the object. Looking at each part of the shape or each part of the object, drawing its outline, and then just shading around it. Negative space drawing is something different entirely. Seeing negative spaces correctly is a pretty cool skill. Negative space is used a great deal when you want to avoid outlining something and you want to create what's called a value drawing. It's also needed when you have to do texture. So it could be looking at skin texture or hair or the texture of uh, leaves in a tree, for example. When you need to focus on the dark shadows behind and underneath the strands of the hair or behind or underneath the branches. The foreground, so the microphone in this case, the positive shape uh, of the microphone or the trees or the leaves or the hair is left behind as white paper uh, for the time being, while the shadows and the, and the bits behind or the darks are drawn in with charcoal or pencil or paint. Today we're talking about negative spaces. In this first example, of course, we're having negative spaces within a drawing or a painting or a piece of art but we're gonna go into a few other examples. In Japanese, there's a concept of ma, which is M-A, spelled M-A, ma. Ma refers to this concept of negative space or the essential void between all things. It could be in an artistic sense, such as a space around the object, this microphone, or in a painting, or it could be in the musical sense, the space between the notes in a song, the gap between chords or notes. And from this perspective, ma is the gap. Ma is something in itself. It's an actuality. The space is not an emptiness. It's the presence of ma. In nature, a lack of space is often used as a tactic, a tool to not stand out. This is seen in herding, of course, which is a really common or, or popular uh, protective mechanism. So we've got herds of zebra. We've got herds of antelope, uh, schools of fish sticking together to enjoy the safety of a pack. This pack confuses the predator because there's a lot of movement and it's hard to differentiate. The confusion in this case is really helpful because the predator needs to see space to be able to differentiate or single out a particular prey. 
So maybe the space comes because one of the antelope is old, it's young, it's injured, or it's just simply not fast enough. Through this differentiation, there's opportunity for action. We see the same with the schooling fish and predatory fish. The prey know how to compress themselves together, how to create confusion and disorder and eliminate the gaps. Uh, in spearfishing or fishing, this is often called a bait ball. So when the fish compress themselves or are herded together so tightly that there's no spaces in between them. And this protective mechanism is so powerful and it's actually run through instinct. So it's not a conscious decision from the fish, it's just happening uh, as part of being a fish. So in movement training, maybe it's weightlifting, gymnastic strength, hand balancing, when we're training these different types of movement or different modalities, when the movements are really complex and they require a lot of neural input, we find one of the biggest determining factors in terms of how hard the session is or how easy it is to absorb the load is the similar concept of density. So density in this case is the amount of work done in the session or in simple terms, how much you're resting in between the sets. So if you do a session and it takes you two hours and there's a certain amount of load lifted or work done, you do the same session in one hour with shorter rests, there's a higher level of density. If there's little rest or short rest, then the density is high, and if there's big rests or longer rest, the density is lower. As the rest shortens, we decrease the space between action. We decrease this concept of ma. It becomes more continuous and significantly more difficult. Of course, this means we can use the strategy as a way to increase the stimulus or demand in the session if we want to as well. Now, when we look inwards into the mind towards our center, it seems we find a similar phenomenon. It turns out that we might be able to find a shift in our mind, our awareness, our relationship with reality when we start to introduce space. In a world where it's now possible for people to never be alone, where over 75% of Australians never let their phones leave their sides, and where there's a continually open conversation in the social media world that you can be part of, we find that this concept of space is really, really lacking. So interesting, interestingly, when I talk with a lot of people, maybe it's clients or people simply in conversation, there is this yearning that I hear for space. And we know this, we feel this. And when we go deeper, we've also find that there's this paradox too. And there's this yearning for space, but also a yearning for deeper connection uh, with ourselves, with nature, and with each other. So perhaps there's something related here between these two. This podcast really is about space. And in particular, I wanted to talk about silence, which is something that is very powerful to me and very helpful to me in my life. So it kind of started out in a bigger way in about 2017. So after cultivating my own sort of stillness practice or meditation practice for some time, probably about uh, eight or nine years at that point, I headed off on my first solo silent meditation retreat. It was about nine days or 10 days, I think. I did this in New Zealand. Uh, this first one was unplugged, so no inputs from technology and no reading. Uh, it was alone and there was a lot of time spent on the cushion in formal practice and meditation. 
uh, maybe, I don't know, eight hours a day, nine hours a day. And <clears throat> although my first exposure to a, this type of situation or, or a similar thread to this had been a lot earlier when we'd gone away sailing on the boat that my dad or my parents had built, um, when I was about 12, we sailed from New Zealand to Fiji, uh, where there was a situation once you leave the shore, there was a similar vast openness or, or this big space that you can't really match anywhere else. And you're sitting right in the between the space between the sea and the sky. So the, the first exposure had been quite a while before. However, the New Zealand trip was really the first in-depth dive for me with this level of aloneness as well and also lack of input so from other people or from uh, any books or technology. And this trip was a few things. It was incredibly difficult at times, incredibly joyful at times, to the point of tears at times and incredibly impactful in terms of my life when I returned. So it's taken some time and a few more of these types of trips to figure out a little more about what happens for me in the silence. Uh, but similar to the fish in the bait ball or the pause between words and conversation, the pause between notes in a song, it seems like this gap allows a certain kind of clarity and even understanding or perception to kind of come through or arise. So let's take a look at what happens in silence. And I'm going to talk about this from the perspective of what I feel happens on one of these silent retreats. And then we can break it down and look at some smaller time frames as well. So there are two things that come to mind straight away. There's a lot that goes on. There's a lot that happens in these types of experiences, but there's two that come up for me straight away. So the first one is the first part of the pause of particular societal inputs. So <clears throat> we enter this situation, we enter this experience, and we have this instant pause where a lot of the inputs from our culture, from our society, are stopped instantly. Each input that we have, the conversation that you had before listening this, listening to this podcast itself, the music you hear on the elevator, in the car, the noise of the traffic they all leave an imprint in the mind, in the subconscious mind, sometimes conscious too. I've talked about this concept of neuroception before, the subconscious assessment and perception of the environment. And there are a lot of blog posts about this. You can check them out if you search through and look for neuroception. But basically, each of these little inputs that we have coming in from our environment, from each other, leaves a little trail, leaves a little bit of conditioning, if you will, leaves a little imprint. We can consciously observe the sounds with effort, say traffic, uh, and notice them consciously, but still there is a little subconscious imprint as well. And often I talk about the example of standing in the shower and you get a song in your head and you, you try to understand where the song came from, you can't remember, and then maybe a day or two later you remember it was you know, when your friend picked you up and took you to the gym and the song was playing in the car. So with no conscious knowledge, these sounds, these conversations leave this imprint that can surface later on. Uh, same thing when someone says something against your beliefs, you're in an argument, you reject it consciously. 
but there's still the subconscious imprint. Or you see someone you're attracted to, you might try to reject this consciously, but there's still the subconscious imprint, the desire or the attachment to the idea of the relationship. So when we create ma or space or silence, we have a pause in all of this. The tap is turned off, or at least it's turned down a lot. So we have this pause in the addition of more stuff. We've got this gap, this pause in the addition of more inputs into the mind, more clutter. The second point or the second part that seems to come up is when we have silence or space, we can observe a little bit more easily. And when we observe, we only really have a few options. We can observe, firstly, what's happening around us in the environment. We can observe what's happening to or in the body, so the bodily experiences. And we can observe what's happening in the mind. And this is a really interesting phenomenon because when we observe, we start to see cracks. And the cracks don't generally appear in the environment, obviously, or what we see even what's happening to or in the body, because both of these are physical. Both of these exist in reality. But there definitely seems to be a tendency for some cracks to come up and surface in our belief systems and our ideas. With the silence and no further inputs, we eventually start to be forced to contrast our belief systems or opinions or ideas with what we see happening in reality. So we see this different perspective that we couldn't get beforehand. When we look, what we're seeing is a living, raw, breathing body in this environment, alone, without any noise, without any voice, without any inputs. So for me, my tertiary education was in engineering. I studied, I started off in uh, mechanical engineering and physics double degree and then switched over to uh, aerospace engineering and I did pretty well. I was really analytical. And what what unfolded when I do these, started to do these solo silent or these uh, silent experiences was really interesting. In these longer periods, my inherent intellectualized approach to everything which I'd really become aware of or noticed a few years beforehand, really started to unravel. It starts to get split wide open and breaks down. Why? Well, because there's no sounding board. There's no belief filter. There's no bubble around you that you can take with you. There's no ability to confirm ideas or thoughts and bounce them off somebody else. There's simply the mind, the body, the environment, or the earth. And we're confronted daily with these aspects of the mind. We start to see it each day we're in one of these experiences. So it becomes very clear and very open. And through this breakdown, and when our ideas or belief systems start to fall apart and we see the flaws in a lot of them, it opens up space for a new kind of knowledge. So not an intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. Often I used to talk about these trips, uh, these retreats, like the CECs of the universe. Because when I started doing them, I was surrounded by a lot of people in the exercise or health profession. And CEC stands for Continuing Education Credits, which is obviously a part of being in that industry. Once you enter the industry, 
a lot of people continue to do workshops or development for the CECs, um, which is another conversation altogether. When you create ma or silence, you obviously don't know what the educational lesson is going to be. When you go on these retreats, you don't know what you're going to learn. But what you do know is is going to be experiential knowledge. And for me, this knowledge has always created a big shift. So a change in the direction of my life when I've come back into the culture or into the day-to-day life. So where to from here? Well, we still have the other main consideration we talked about, this cultural lack and connection, this feeling that people have that they're looking for not more breadth in their connection you know, they have hundreds or thousands of friends or followers on their Facebook or Instagram, but a depth, a depth in relationships, a depth in friendships, even a depth in their day-to-day interaction in broader society. And there's this lack, general lack of feeling connected. But to connect, though, to really connect, we need non-triviality. So we need Space. We aren't looking to connect on the ideas level, like that's a great discussion, but really here we're talking about connection at the more human level, so beyond the beliefs or beyond the ideas. What does this mean? Well, it means that we can use this idea of space or of silence or of ma to help foster connection. It also allows us to see through our own beliefs and narratives in this moment of connection, allows us to see beyond the other person's beliefs or narratives, and allows us together to connect on a level below that. So we can connect below our disagreements. We can connect below our conflicting belief systems and thought structures. Perhaps we connect on the level of their personal story. We connect on their own level of experiential knowledge, things that they've seen, things that they know or feel. All right, so it's pretty clear that not everyone is going to want to do these longer solo silent retreats, and that's really cool. That's fair. So what are some of the options? Let's break this down to a shorter time frame. So there's a couple things we can do. I'm going to run through three that I think are quite helpful or powerful and three that I continue to use myself And they seem to be of assistance. So the first one is boundaries on technology. And this is hard. But this is understanding our relationship of how we use the devices. Your phone, your computers, and in particular, how you're using these in the context of connection. So this means this could be at home, how these are impacting your connection with the people around you. It could be a workplace or it could be just when you're out and about, the cafe, uh, the restaurants. So understanding the scene, this how are you actually using them? What's the feeling you have to look at it? What's the feeling you have to check the email? Noticing this conflict, noticing this shift away from pain towards pleasure. The second thing, once you've created the boundaries on technology, one, one of those could be simply, I talk a lot about, is uh, taking the phones out of uh, the bedroom. So no phones in the bedroom kind of policy. Um, it's very simplified, but it basically is removing devices from an area, a space, which is for connection, for sleep or for connection. So the second one is 
creating space for silence as the individual. So this is perhaps meditation, sure, in the morning or in the evening, a practice, a seated practice. It could be a walk in silence, no podcast, you know, no listening. A walk with another person in silence, space, you know, no conversation. It could be a morning routine. It could be a different kind of practice. It could be even in your surfing or in your sport. However, that's probably a different conversation and can get a little bit tricky as well. But effectively, what we're doing here is eliminating the inputs. And it also allows us to become the observer, to see, similar in the longer retreats. Finally is this ongoing practice and we can use the word ma again, but practicing the silence, these spaces in our daily lives. For any of those who have read any of Osho's work, and I've read a lot of his stuff, I love his stuff, it's great, it's good sense of humor and some great ideas as well. He often talks about the way he speaks, and you will have noticed his way of speaking, and his intentional way of creating spaces in the words. Through spaces, the listener's mind stops because the way he uses spaces is unexpected. So he'll be speaking, then a long pause. And this can interrupt the flow of ordinary events. So for us as the listener, we don't expect this. We can use this in our writing. We can use this in our punctuation, how we use punctuation. We can play with this, observe this, and see this in our speaking or in our communication. Of course, we don't need to overdo it, but we simply can notice the pauses, notice what we're hearing in between the words. How are we speaking? And of course, finally, we can come to our breath. We have the inhale, the pause, the exhale, the pause. So each breath cycle gives us a couple of different opportunities. Easing into silence at the beginning can be really, really scary. It can be scary because this is a letting go. The ego, the belief system, the structure of who we believe that we are will not want us to create this gap. It will do anything. There will be resistances all over the place when we try to do this. We're too tired to sit. We don't have time to go away. We don't have, we have too much work. We can't unplug for the weekend. It goes on and on. If we're aware of this, though, this resistance, we can start to create some strategies or find some support to move through this if we're interested in cultivating this experience and if we're interested in finding out more. So we can start off small. We can look for little windows. I believe these little windows are really powerful. For me, they've had a huge impact, a positive impact in my life. Not always easy, but the end result, the learning, the experience has been really helpful. So I believe these windows can bring a great benefit to our daily lives, to our health, to our relationships, of course, to our work, and ultimately to our happiness. So that's all for this week's episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions on this episode or any other, send them through to john at johntmarsh.com. Make sure to check out the blog if you want to see some more work on retreats, on silence, on some of the stuff. There's a few posts. And I will see you next week. Thanks for listening.